It's Tuesday, July 18th. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Wright Report, your daily news podcast. I've got four briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First up, I've got some news about the wheat wars. Russia pulled out of a critical grain deal yesterday, so we are going to talk about what happened and why you should care. Second, the Japanese government is growing nervous about joining America should there ever be a war with China. I'll explain why that is a big deal and what it means for you. Third, former U.S. President Donald Trump made a promise a couple weeks ago to block communists and Marxists from around the world from ever entering into the United States. I'll tell you about whether or not he can do that. Next, former Fox News host Tucker Carlson is set to launch a new media outlet. I'll explain why that signals a pretty important evolution in the way that Americans get their information and news. Later, we close out the podcast with an email from Wayne in St. Louis, Missouri. He had an observation about the White House cocaine story, and I think that Wayne is spot on. I'll share with you what he said. But first, let's get to our top story of the morning. The wheat wars, my goodness, they are heating up. Yesterday, the Russian government withdrew their involvement in something called the Black Sea Grain Initiative. To refresh our memories on this, it was an agreement between Russia and Ukraine that allowed Kiev to ship their agricultural products to international markets, all via the Black Sea. In return, Russia was supposed to be able to do two things. First, sell their fertilizers to the world. And second, get access to the international banking system for one of their banks, which was blocked after they invaded Ukraine. Plus, Moscow promised to, well, not blow up any of those ships on the Black Sea that were carrying Ukraine's wheat and corn and sunflowers. So that was the deal, signed last summer by all the parties involved. Now, more or less, it has been working. Or so that is the argument by the United Nations and Western powers. Moscow, however, was not so convinced. They felt like they were getting a raw deal. So they pulled out of the agreement yesterday, leaving the world to wonder what is going to come next. Well, so far, it's not exactly great news. Wheat futures were up around 3% yesterday. Corn up around 2%. In other words, this collapse of the grain deal definitely had a market impact. Although I should say it's not as bad as some folks had initially feared. Although you shouldn't tell that to the United Nations or certain Western powers, they are calling Russia's decision an act of cruelty and a political game that only will hurt the world's poor. And that is because, at least according to this Western argument, the grain from Ukraine goes to poor countries in places like Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. Plus, they say that the extra supply from Ukraine actually helps keep prices low globally for consumers everywhere. But is all of that true? Did poor countries benefit from this deal? And does Ukraine's supply of ag goods actually keep prices lower globally? And finally, why exactly did Russia pull out from this deal in the first place? Well, let's tackle all of those questions, starting with the first one. Did poor countries benefit from this deal directly? Because in fact, that was the major goal last summer when this deal was signed. So here's what we know about this. According to the BBC and the United Nations, 75% of Ukraine's ag goods that have been shipped out over the past year actually went to rich countries, especially in Europe and China. 
Meanwhile, only 2% of that stuff has gone to poor nations who benefit from, say, UN aid programs, countries like Somalia and Yemen. So all in all, it is fair to say that Ukraine's ag products have largely not gone to, say, desperately poor countries around the world. Next, let's talk about the claim that the grain deal has lowered global prices. Again, the argument here is that because all those extra Ukrainian supplies, commodity prices for wheat and corn and sunflowers have all dropped. Now, there is some data to suggest this is true. The United Nations, for instance, says that prices have been about 20% lower than they would have been without this deal. But the real question, I think, is what is going to happen to prices moving forward? Well, we're not sure. We did see that little bump yesterday, but moving forward, it's going to depend on a host of variables from weather to to harvest quality. In fact, I gave you a pretty deep dive into the future of the the world's wheat production. I did that back on June 8th. So take a listen to that when you're done today. But the upshot is this. We just don't know yet. We'll have to wait a couple more months to know for sure what the ultimate impact will be on prices moving forward. Finally, let's talk about why Russia pulled out of this deal. Right? And for that, let's talk about the three reasons that they mentioned yesterday. First, Moscow claims that the spirit of the agreement was violated when Ukraine's ag products didn't go to those poor countries that they, that they all agreed to. And if we're honest, Moscow does have a bit of a point here. Second, Russia's leaders said yesterday that they were supposed to get their fertilizer sold uh, you know, into the international markets all via a pipeline that runs from Russia to a Ukrainian port. Moscow says that that has not happened yet. And they're right. And that's because somebody keeps blowing it up. The pipeline was sabotaged, in fact, just in June, with estimates that it's going to take about three months to repair. Well, unfortunately, that has been the pattern for about a year now. Somebody blows it up or damages it, and it's uh, repaired, but then it's blown up again. And that takes us to reason number three that the Russians left this deal yesterday, and that is banking Russia was promised last summer that one of their banks that handles agricultural deals would get access to the international banking system, right? They were kicked out of that shortly after Moscow invaded Kiev. But so far, that allowance for a Russian bank to get back into the global system has not happened. So you put each of those three things together, and that is why Russia said yesterday, goodbye, or I think it's dos vidania in Russian, which takes us to this. Why should you care? Well, there's one reason, I think. Grain markets don't like it when you yank a bunch of the supply out of the grain pipeline. It generally translates to higher prices for consumers, including you and me. So again, is that going to happen in this case? We just don't know yet. Lots of variables to consider, including this. Russia might suddenly decide to rejoin this deal because, well, they get what they want. But in the event that they don't, it is quite possible that your grocery bill will be affected by this. And that's why I'm going to keep watching this very closely over the next couple of months to give you an update on where those prices are headed and ultimately the impact it's going to have on your pocketbook. I'll keep you posted. With that, let's move on to our second brief of the morning. A pretty surprising development, folks, to tell you about out of Japan. In fact, I want to put it on your radar. The government of Tokyo might not join the United States if we go to war with China. That news was reported over the weekend by the Wall Street Journal, and it shocked many observers because it undermined a pretty key assumption in who would make up an alliance if America were to engage in a war with China. 
So here's what we know this morning with this key piece of background. The United States has about 54, 55,000 troops concentrated mostly on the southern Japanese island of Okinawa, plus other key naval assets nearby. But in order for the U.S. to use those troops to, say, defend Taiwan, well, Japan actually has to give their blessing for these folks to be deployed. That is based on an agreement from back in the 1960s. Plus, the assumption has long been that Japan would stand next to us should China invade Taiwan and we fight back. But now, we're not so sure on either account. All right, so the Wall Street Journal is reporting that Tokyo to the first piece is getting a little bit skittish about authorizing those U.S. troops to conduct a counterattack against China. And that's because Tokyo fears a nuclear response by the Chinese on Okinawa and beyond. Second, Japan has so far refused to commit their military in the event Beijing invades Taiwan, even though Japan could deploy their navy to, say, hunt Chinese subs or ships. So the Pentagon has been asking Tokyo for over a year now to do so, to uh, commit their military, but to no avail. All right, so why is that? Well, polls of the Japanese public actually show that they are strongly opposed to getting involved in any war with China unless they are attacked first. Second and related, there's a history since World War II of pacifism in Japan, right? No offensive use of force. Although that is slowly changing. In fact, the Japanese are jacking up their defense spending by 60%, ordering things like more fighter jets and Tomahawk missiles too. But still, it is a maybe from Tokyo on about whether they will stand with us should a war with China ever come. And I'll tell you, that is quite shocking. So those are the facts and data this morning. Let me pivot to my analysis and opinion, asking ourselves, why should we care about this news? And I want to start with this reminder. President Xi of China has directed his military to be ready to take back Taiwan by force, if necessary, by the year 2027. Right, That is just four years away. And it is why it is so important to start preparing right now. And the Pentagon, they know that. Right? They know that we need Japan by our side. In fact, military planners have conducted these things called tabletop war exercises. And without Japan, we are in big trouble, far more bloody, with a much higher chance of failure. So getting the Japanese on board quickly and publicly, it's vital. Beijing needs to know that there's an alliance against them that would be very formidable. And that big alliance might force China to avoid invading Taiwan in the first place because the cost just ultimately wouldn't be worth it. So let's keep our eyes on what the Japanese do and say in public, because depending on that answer, ladies and gentlemen, it could have profound impacts on every one of us should war with China come. And we have to fight that with one less ally. With that, let's take our first break of the morning. Enjoy the following messages from our sponsoring partners, remembering that if you don't hear my voice telling you about a product or a service, then I do not endorse it. We'll be right back. Folks, it's Brian here proudly telling you about ArcSeedKits.com. Yeah, it's the farm that offers you heirloom seeds for both food security and good health. By now, you know that Arc Seed Kits come from a family farm based in northern Michigan. They've got their best seller, an all-in-one seed kit that gives you, my goodness, fruits, vegetables, even medicinal herbs. But they also have a smaller, more personalized offering, too. It's a seed kit with just those traditional medicines. And it's called the Build Your Own Kit. 
and it is super easy, very affordable, and I want to tell you how it works. First, you go to arcseedkits.com, then you click on the shop now button and choose build your own kit. Then you select the option that best fits you and your budget. And boy, oh boy, do you have options. 16 different varieties of medicinal herbs to choose from with data that show that you can treat things like stomach aches and inflammation, topical pain, even sleeplessness. And here's the best part. Your build your own heirloom seeds can be grown and harvested and replanted year after year. Folks, that is medicine that you can count on. And by the way, if you've never grown medicinal herbs, do not worry. Call Arc Seed Kits when you order and ask them any questions you have from what to choose to how to grow it. The owner of Arc Seed Kits, she is going to pick up your call and step you all the way through it. Now that is customer service. So folks, do yourself a favor and buy good food and good health from ArcSeedKits.com. That's Arc like Noah's Arc, ArcSeedKits.com. As always, enter right as the promo code, that's W-R-I-G-H-T, and you will get 10% off your order. So folks, go to arcseedkits.com, get your build your own medical kit, and I promise you, you won't regret it. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue with our briefs this morning with a pivot towards domestic news. So we start with former U.S. President Donald Trump, who for the past month or so has made this promise. Elect me and I will target the Marxists and the communists in America and around the world. In fact, he said that, quote, we are going to keep foreign Christian-hating communists and Marxists and socialists out of America, end quote. All right, well, putting aside what we think of that idea, the question that some folks are asking is this. Can he do that? All right, does current U.S. law allow a president to block or ban the entry of communists or Marxists into the United States? Well, the answer is... Yes. So here's what we know, as confirmed by the Associated Press. Current U.S. immigration law says that, well, any migrant who is or has been a member of or affiliated with the Communist Party or any subdivision or affiliate thereof, well, they are inadmissible for entry into the United States. By the way, that was a law that was uh, adopted rather back in 1918 when socialist movements were terrorizing countries around the world, including in Russia. But that law apparently doesn't apply to people who want to come here to the U.S. on, say, a tourist visa or a student visa. And that is why Trump has also said that he's going to use a different law for those kinds of folks, a law that gives a president the authority to ban anyone from coming into the country who might be, and here it is, quote, detrimental to the interests of the United States, end quote. In other words, a president has some pretty wide latitude here. Although, to be fair, legal scholars do debate how far he could go with a a general ban on communists. Regardless, if Trump does get reelected and uses this tool, he could certainly target the Chinese with it to either eject them from the country or prevent them from traveling here in the first place. And that's why I'm bringing this to you beyond the political debate. And here's why. Let me pivot briefly away from facts and data to my analysis and opinion. So as I've shared with you before, the FBI director has said repeatedly that the FBI opens a counterintelligence investigation against a Chinese target every 10 to 12 hours, every day, 365 days a year. And I will tell you from personal experience that the Bureau does not have enough staff to deal with that kind of attack against America. And that means, folks, that we are going to need other tools to fight back. 
And whatever you think about Mr. Trump, his embrace of this law about immigration and ejecting people, in other words, this approach, that would be both very much legal and frankly, a pretty appropriate use of presidential power. Now, I should say, and to be fair, critics argue that this approach is much too aggressive, much too broad, as we have this delicate relationship with not only the Chinese, but say the, the Vietnamese. In other words, at least in the case of China, they are a nuclear power, so we should be treating them with some degree of care. But nevertheless, what you think about all that, the point is this. The laws to do what Trump wants to do, they're there. So if he wants to use them, I suspect he will. Finally, this morning, there has been a lot of news lately about a fellow named Tucker Carlson. He's the former host of a show on Fox News. He was, well, fired for some reason, not entirely clear why. But either you like him or hate him, he was a very important figure in America's media. And that's why I think that what he does next is so interesting and so intriguing. Not just because of him, but rather how it will likely impact the news and opinion in America's media landscape. And more importantly, who gets to control it? So here's the latest on that. Over the weekend, the Wall Street Journal reported that Mr. Carlson and a former business partner are launching a new media company. It's going to have shows and documentaries and short interviews, all of which will be broadcast on Twitter. So the general idea is that free content will be posted there and then a subscription-only content on the company's website. As of right now, no plans for TV or radio. Meanwhile, Mr. Carlson has apparently signed a multi-million dollar uh, ad deal that's going to help him finance this new endeavor. Plus, he's lined up some pretty deep-pocketed investors, likely going to raise a couple hundred million bucks. So all in all, those are the very interesting facts and data this morning on this developing story about Mr. Tucker Carlson and his switch from mainstream press to, well, something new, something different. With that, let me offer you this quick piece of analysis and opinion. So back on July 3rd, I gave you a brief on something called fake news. All right, I told you about the long history of how America's media has been dominated by the most rich, the elite. Right? For instance, back in the late 1800s, there were two very rich men with one named Joseph Pulitzer. The other was William Randolph Hearst, and they battled for readers in their newspapers. But that era of rich men and a limited number of outlets, that is changing There is a proliferation of folks who are getting into the media business from well-connected folks like Tucker Carlson to the less than connected, such as, well, me. In other words, the barriers to entry are pretty low, and that is allowing a freer, more democratic process of collecting and analyzing and sharing America's news. All right, let's be honest. Sometimes that's good, and sometimes it's not. It's fake. But either way. What it means is that folks like you have more choices to not only learn about the news, but decide who's telling you the truth and ultimately who controls the truth. And that has got to scare the socks off of big media companies that little upstarts can challenge their reach. But you know what? That's good for the rest of us anyway. And ultimately, I think the country. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this morning's episode of the right report. But I've got one more thing before I let you go. So enjoy this next break, remembering that if you don't hear my voice on these next messages, I do not endorse it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the right report with one more thing before I let you go. 
Wayne out in St. Louis, Missouri wrote in. So he listened to the brief that I gave you last week on that ongoing saga related to the bag of cocaine that was found in the White House. And Wayne, he wondered this. I think, Brian, that there is another angle here for us to consider, right? If I were China or Russia, I would want to figure out who that drug user was. Because if I could, I might be able to, say, blackmail him or recruit him. Do you think that's possible? Oh, Wayne, you, sir, would make a good spy. Because, because you were absolutely right that such is possible. And frankly, very much a goal of our adversaries. Who wouldn't want an extra set of eyes and ears in the White House? All right, so let's do this. Let's have some fun. Let's imagine that we are sitting in a CIA station abroad, and we're thinking about how we would do it if we had the chance. All right, how might we find that cocaine user? Well, as you think about it, let me offer you this. Back in 2018, the Department of Homeland Security found a device by the White House. It's called a Stingray. Basically, it acts like a, a fake cell phone tower. And as mobile devices connect to it, it's able to scoop up the traffic that goes through it. So imagine that there's another one of those Stingrays being set up near the White House. And that cell phone of the cocaine user it connects to it. Now, maybe he or she calls or texts their dealer about getting their next bag of cocaine. Well, at that point, if you control the Stingray, huh, you are off to the espionage races, right? Perhaps after a few months, you make contact with the person. You try to befriend them, learning their motivations, vulnerabilities, and then you recruit them, ultimately collecting intel or just getting physical access to the White House. So all in all, this is why this story is so important, that whoever this is with the bag of cocaine clearly has an addiction of some kind, and they're in the White House, and we got to discover them. It is a matter of national security. Now, I know that just yesterday, Mr. Biden's press secretary waved off this issue again. She and the Secret Service aren't especially concerned about it anymore, but they should be. And you know what? Thanks to listeners like Wayne, we have another reason to remind us of, of exactly why that is true. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude your morning brief. As always, I will see you tomorrow, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy and every wise American. They're the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day.